Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Well, an Irish Hospice Foundation survey, this is of people bereaved during the pandemic, has found that 56% said that they weren't able to spend the time that they wanted with their loved ones before they died. And the chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation, Jean Callanan, is with me uh, in studio today. Jean, you actually, you wrote an article this week um, entitled No One Should Be Forced to Die Alone, Restricting Access is Cruel. Will you tell us how you came to this conclusion? Uh, well, I had a, my, my own personal experience, which is my own father died in December this year and we were lucky enough to keep him at home. Um, so we had supports to keep him to keep him at home and he died at home with myself and my five siblings around him. Um, and I was really conscious afterwards that an awful lot of people didn't actually have that opportunity, that they had uh, a situation where if he had been in hospital at that time, we would not have been able to be with him. For most of the time, we might have been allowed in uh, you know, grace and favour, hour mm. at the end, but that would have been all. The, the research carried out by the Irish Hospice Foundation, um, I mean, it, when you think back now to the start of the early days of lockdown and how strict, you know, the rules and the care settings were. And, and yes, they had to be in hospitals due to the, we, did, we didn't know what we were dealing with. I mean, the COVID figures, the number of people that were being admitted in ICU constantly rising. But what made the Irish Hospice Foundation, you know what, we'd actually like to look into this to just assess the impact of this on families. Because we have a bereavement support line and we've been here hearing from people talking about the the terrible impact, the, the sort of suffering they've had as a result of not having been able to be with loved ones at the at the very end. Um, we we are all acutely aware of how traumatic that first period of the mm. pandemic was and uh, nobody is is having a go at the decisions that were made then. But what we are saying is that there is still a hangover of that now. And while I can go to concerts with tens of thousands of people without masks, I can go on the uh, public transport without masks, people are still being stopped from being in hospitals and in care homes with loved ones who are coming towards end of life. And we do not think that's appropriate. And it's sort of become, it's, it's sort of become a habit and we need to look and make conscious decisions about these sorts and of things. And that's still the case now, Jean, because I'd say a lot of people are, you know, when you think about it, there could be 60,000 at a gig this weekend. People probably aren't aware that some of these rules are still in place. It's it's quite tricky to find the rules, but I've been really struck by the level of response I've got to, to this Tell article. Tell us about that, Jean. So I've had, I've had different people on to me, people I don't know on social media or who've been able to reach me other ways, saying things like, well, it's still happening. So I had somebody on from whose mother is... Uh, terminally ill, dying in a nursing home in Kerry, saying she is not getting the level of access that she wants to her to her mother. Uh, I had somebody else on saying that his father had died very recently and the hospital was saying, no, it could only be his children who were there. He was a man in his 90s and yet the person who was closest to him was a friend who had been his friend since eight years of old. In the end, they made up the story that he was his brother in order to get, to get him to, him to have access. We shouldn't have to do those things. There should, there's a degree of humanity in all of this. And it, it needs, it, it's a bit like I went looking for a bread roll yesterday and I found I could only buy four bread rolls together in a plastic bag. That was done at the time of COVID when we weren't sure could you, you know, breathe on bread rolls and contaminate them. And so it was done. But it's continuing. So what's happening is we had a norm before COVID, mm. when people could go in, could have easy access to uh, to loved ones at end of life, whether they were in a nursing home or in a hospital. And that has not come back. We need to get back to that new norm. And like, yes, we look at the, you know, there's a lot of discussion even in recent days about the COVID-19 cases and new strain and, and, and the numbers uh, pr- presenting um, in, in hospital with COVID as well, Jean. But you think despite that, we still need to revisit in these certain cases, like I, the- I do very much think we need okay. to revisit it in relation to end of life. And what's been really interesting is when I've been talking to doctors and specialists about it, none of them have pushed back at me. 
But there is a sort of a, a fear of taking on a sacred cow. I am not saying that things were done wrong at the beginning no, of the pandemic. No, I know that. Yeah. I'm saying, but we're I'm two saying and a half years. The, we're two, what are we, two years exactly, on? We're, two, we're, we're two more than years two years on. on. Yeah, so we, we need to, as a society, decide, is this important? Mm. And I think people being okay. allowed to be with people at end of life is is part of our common humanity. Whether yeah. we like it or not, we're all going to die. Uh, and we know that this but is one of the you things know that what, people want. Uh, having gone through this with a parent in, in the last you know couple of years, like the end of life visitation and, and being able to be there and care for people, it's as much actually for the, the family been left behind. It's as much for the people who are being bereaved. They need that access. Absolutely. And what we are seeing is, I mean, we, we can't actually talk to the person who has died. So so the Irish Hospital Foundation can't go and do research among the people who've, who've died. So we don't know what the impact was on them. I Although I was very struck by the um, palliative care consultant who said to me that the touch and sound of the voice of a loved one was more impactful than painkilling being painkillers on somebody at end of life and that's so sad to think about it. Um, Would you stay with us Jean because I I mentioned at the start of the programme that you know if there were people we were going to be talking about this today and if people wanted to get in touch with us maybe to share their own experience of how they were affected um, they can do so. The number is 1800 453 106 and actually Christine is with us on the line. Um, Christine can you tell us maybe your experience? Yeah um, like that now at the the start of the pandemic, obviously, when we found out that the, you know, that there was stopping the visiting, you know, for families going into the nursing homes, obviously very traumatic for families, especially myself. That was well because I'd visit my mom every single day, if not twice a day. So that was very traumatic for me. But I was taking it as it mightn't go on so long, you know, and it might be for the best, and she's safe, you know, she'll be should be kept safe and we might be able to get in the sear when this, you know, ends. Hopefully mm. it would have ended soon, but it didn't. But as it, as it turned out anyway, a year on um, of being, you know, cut off from her, really, basically, like we had a few WhatsApp video calls, which, which would have been no good to my mum because my mum had dementia, so she didn't understand what a WhatsApp video call was. So that wasn't any good for her and it wasn't any good for us because I'd be, you know, talking down the phone to her telling her I loved her and, but she wasn't even looking at the phone because she didn't know what it was. So, obviously, time came then later on in the pandemic that we got, we said half an hour for one person out of the family per week to go in and couldn't touch her, couldn't sit near her and my mum was the kind of person, even through her dementia, she would, She'd always put her hand out and, you know, try to touch it. She just wanted affection all the time. So we, I couldn't give her that because I was restricted from doing that. So when it came to... It's just a lack of communication then on the time leading up to her death. We found out by accident that she had COVID. Nobody told me that she had COVID. I found out the night before she passed away that she had COVID. And she died on her own with us looking at her through a window for two hours. Oh, Christine. The following night, um, which we never, ex- we, no, we, we never expected anything like that. You know, I all that week, I knew that there was restrictions after coming in again the week before she passed because I think there was a member, there was a couple of members of staff and a couple of residents were after testing positive, but we were assured that they were being isolated and everything was running okay. And I just presumed my mum was okay. She was being isolated, that if there was anything wrong, I would have been contacted, but I wasn't contacted. So I just made my own phone call on the 31st of January just to say, you know, just asking how was she doing because I hadn't seen her all that week, even through a window visit. So I was told over the phone that she was on oxygen and she had a very bad night. So I, obviously, I... I actually thought that they were speaking about somebody else and I said no, given them my mum's name, I said no, I'm speaking about such a person, my mum's name. And they said, yeah, 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 she's on oxygen, she's not doing too good. And I said, um, what do you mean? You know, why? Why is she on oxygen? And they said, oh, she has COVID. And, like, I just begged them to get me somebody to speak to, get me a member of, you know, the, the nursing staff. And they said that they couldn't, that they were too busy ring back in the morning and, I rang back all that day 
numerous times just to get the answer from the receptionist saying that they'll get back to you. Mm. And they eventually did get back to me that evening, the Monday evening on the 1st of February, stating that um, Christina, mum isn't doing too good. Um, keep your phone on. So I begged them. I begged them on the phone to um to leave me come out to, to be with her. And they said, no, just keep your phone on. So, um, like, like that, just in a panic, I just, I just rang the rest of the family and said, look, there's something not right. My mum has COVID. I don't think she's doing too good. So, my brother and his wife came in to me, and as as they came in, I got a, another phone call saying, hey, you need to come out. So I asked them, is my mum dying? And they just said, no, you need to come out. Um, and a second phone call then while I was just trying to get organised to get out the door, get, you know, my husband to mind my daughter and um, my sister and I answered my phone and they said, yeah, they said bring an umbrella. So we ended up watching my mum die for over two hours in torrential rain and wind outside the window. And even when we arrived at that door that night, the staff didn't even know why we were there. They weren't even informed that we were coming out. They were looking at us as if, who are you? You know, and I just kept trying to tell them that I got the phone call. My mom is unwell. We need to be with her. And they were just trying to communicate among themselves. And eventually somebody came up and said, yeah, go around the back. And um, when we did go around the back, all the curtains in the, all the different rooms were all just pulled closed. And we were standing in the dark for another, it could be 15 minutes. I was trying to peep through each window to see was my mum in one of them. And um, eventually my brother had to go around the front and say, look, we're, we're out the back. Where's where's my mum? And eventually somebody came out and pulled back the curtains and my mum was lying dying in bed. And my other brother begged the person to leave, just me, just one person in, just to be with her while she was on her last few breaths and they wouldn't leave me in. So we just spent that time... Uh, yeah, just watching her die alone, and no. And the worst thing about it was, no member of staff went in to check on her in all the time that we were there. So she died completely alone, with us watching her, and it's the most traumatic experience that anybody could ever imagine. It, you know, it's just inhumane. Inhumane is the only way I can describe it because I have to live with that every single day, as do the rest of my family. You know, and things, this can't happen to families again. You know, like things do have to change. Families should be allowed in, especially at the end of life. You know, it's it's just traumatic for families that are still having to live with what happened, you know. God, Christina, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was, you know, it's just... It's just there all the time, all the time. I I can just see that every single day and... If even if they gave me five minutes, like PPE was there, you know. I mean, I know other families were in the same situation that they only got phone. Well, similar situations, they got phone calls saying that their loved one had died. Other families got a phone call as the week went on. Would you like to come in and visit because your loved one isn't well? So it's it just it's contradicting why we were left outside. Other families were told. Their loved one had died, and other families were got the phone call. Do they want to come in? It just doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense to me why this happened to us and other families. You know, it just it just can't happen again. No, and even just listening to you, Christine, just the visual of standing at the window with your family members and running from glass pane to glass pane to try and. Yeah, peek through her eyes yeah. like it's just, and that's exactly what it was for the first. As I said, we were in the dark out the back, and I was. And my fingerprints were actually just like when they opened the curtains. I, I, I was just stuck to that window, just watching her every breath. And when, and this is the thing: when she eventually did pass away, I was hoping. I don't know. In, in the back of my mind, I was hoping. I may, you know, she might be just going to sleep. She might be. She might wake up. But she didn't. And when she did die, nobody was there to tell. No member of staff was inside with her. Nobody, 
around so my, my other brother had to go around the front and knock on the door and um, say we think my mum has passed away and they came down then and they checked her and they back, opened the curtains again and said yeah put up the hand as if to say yeah she's gone and um, we were left there so we stayed with her for another I don't know it could have been 20 minutes half an hour just absolutely traumatised outside that window imagine. just because that's um, huge trauma, Christine, yeah, for you and unreal. your family. Yeah, unreal. Un, it's just, as I said, inhumane. You wouldn't, you wouldn't wish it on anybody. And as my, like my my brother, then after we spoke to the director of nursing later on that eight, that night to find out what do we do next, my brother went back around after another. It could have been twenty minutes again, and she was still lying there on her own with the curtains pulled back. So we don't know how long she was lying there on her own. She could have been there all night without nobody going into it. We don't know. You know, and these are all the questions. I know, we have so many questions, Christine. My so heart is broken questions. for you listening to you, you know, just it's... it's yeah, it's, it's... Like, I know I'm not the only one. I mean, there's so many other families with similar horrific, you know, I know, but still, it's, it's... It's... When it's your it's own, you know, loved one, it's just, it's it's absolutely incredible. Like, uh, Christine, Jean is still with us, Jean Callan, actually. And, and like, wh- how do you advise Christine and, and other families that are in Christine's position? Like, what, how do you, how, how Christine actually, you know, how are you doing in the aftermath of all of this? How am I doing? Yeah. Absolutely. What, I'm, I'm actually traumatised. I know. You know, I I have to live with it every single day, and I I live with guilt. Guilt is overwhelming because I'm I'm just telling myself, should I have fought more to get in that night? But they they wouldn't let me. But I'm I'm thinking, should I have screamed and shouted and demanded? But the guilt of her dying on her own for, and I've said it numerous times before, she was a person that loved company and loved mm. people around her. She hated, absolutely hated being on her own. Yeah. And for her to die alone like that, and as that, somebody said, the most important thing for somebody dying is for a loved one to be holding their hand to speak to them and tell them that they love them. And we didn't get that. We had to watch through a closed window in a storm. And my mum didn't know we were there. She was just, you know, she was dying, so she didn't. There was nobody, and and I, even if somebody in the nursing home went into her, it might have been a small bit of a comfort, and went in and hold, held her hand and said, "Look, your, you know, your family are outside. They love you. You know, you I can know, go. They love just... you." But nobody did, and that's the most traumatizing of it all. That she just died on her own with us watching, and helpless, the... absolutely helpless. Christine, it's, it's I know, and I, I, it's, it's very hard. I don't even like. It's just your heart. My heart is broken for you listening to you today, and and for your family thinking of just that scenario, that picture that you've painted, talking about your your poor mum and looking, you know, through through a glass pane. Um, can I just, Christina, I want to ask Jean Callan, because she's with us as well, the chair of the Hospice Foundation. Like, what do you say to Christine, Jean? You know, listen to her story there. It's unbelievable. Like, there are no words. There, there really are no words that you can you can express. Christine, my heart goes out to you. I cannot even begin to imagine how it felt uh, when it happened and how it feels now. It, it's a yeah. year. It's a year later. It, it's over. It's practically nearly a year and a half, and it's still so raw as if it happened yesterday. And it's all due to just even the lack of compassion from the nursing home. You know yeah. they. There was nothing. It was, it was as if she didn't matter, you know. And she did matter, like all the rest of the residents. They all mattered, but it was just that's the feeling I get, as if you know, like when we were when the director of nursing went in and checked checked her and put up the hand as if to say, yeah. It was just she. They didn't even put the covers over her head. They and when my brother, as I said, went back down, she was still on her own. Like, how long more was she on her own? Was she there all night? Just laying dead in that bed with the curtains open? We don't know. And you definitely feel, Christine, that you, um, 
God, you, you need to have there need people are entitled to answers, Jean. Really, aren't they? Like that's the, it's they an, are. Incre- it's inc- I mean, in some ways, it's not going to bring your mum back. But the thing we have no, to do is we have to learn from yeah, it. Absolutely, and we have and we to make have sure that, like, that that this cannot yeah. happen again, and that this is properly. Discussed. There's, there's other people as well. I think Jean that listening to Christine, that just my heart is going out to this caller. I'm weeping for her loss. As one text or another listener again, I'm in a similar situation to Christine, and I, I wonder if you've any advice. Um, will you? Would you mind staying with us? And we're going to come back to this maybe a, a, in, in a few moments or a little bit later in the program, uh, Jean, because I, I would like to just maybe get a sense of the experience of other people. But Christine, thank you very much for for contacting us and joining thank us on you. the program today and sharing your story. I mean, it's it's incredible. To I, I don't even I don't know what to say to Christine because it's just it's an absolutely incredible scenario um five three one oh six is the number though if people want to get in contact with us and Jean, Jean Callan from the Irish Hospice Foundation is still actually with me and she's here in studio with me as well. I'll come, come back to Jean maybe in a moment. But Sharon got in touch and Sharon's on the line. Sharon, thanks for joining us today. Would you mind maybe sharing your experience? I will, of course, Andrea. Thanks for listening to me. <clears throat> um, my dad died of COVID in November of 2021 um, in a nursing home. Now, he was tested positive for COVID on the 5th of November. Um, we were told that he was okay and that he was doing okay. Um, all weekend, we were trying to get through to the nursing home and couldn't get through on certain days. And then other days, we could get through. Um, the Monday, they said he was okay. And on the Tuesday, they said that he was just starting to go downhill a bit. Um, but there was no, he was in no danger and that hopefully he'd be out the other side of it. On the Wednesday then, um, he we got, a, we got a call from the GP to say that he was in no immediate danger and that his chest was clear and that um, he was coming out the other side of it. Now, still not able to get in to see him. Um, on the Wednesday night, I got a call to come to the nursing home just to see him. So I did go and I got into the PP gear and when I went in, my dad was literally dying. Um, he had oxygen on him, but the oxygen that was up his nose, the tubes, they were halfway down his chin. So the man was getting no oxygen. Um, I asked them, was he dying? And they told me, no, that he wasn't and that he'd be okay. Now, they did say that um, other members of the family could come in on Thursday or Friday. So my brother and my sister agreed to go in on Friday. They went in to see him and my dad was just very bad. He wasn't great at all. And on the Saturday morning at 7.02, I received a call to come to the nursing home. Now, they just said, would I come? So I literally live about 10 or 15 minutes away from the nursing home. Um, got dressed, rang my mother, rang my brother, rang my sister, told them that I got the call, went out to the nursing home. It was lashing rain in the same morning, the 14th of November. Um, rang the nursing home to tell them that I was outside. Um, they couldn't find the key for the fire exit door to leave me in. They were looking for the key. Um, 10 to 8, still no sign of the key, and I eventually got in about 8 o'clock. Um, when I got in, they dressed me in the PPE gear and brought me to my dad's room. And when I opened the door and looked at my dad, my dad's eyes were opened, his mouth was opened, and I just asked the nurse, is he after passing? And she said, yes. Now, nobody told me he was after passing before this until I got to the room. Um, I asked, I said, what time? I said, yes, he passed at 6.45. Oh, Sharon. Yes, so there was no one else left in then. So I had to go to the window, tell my brother, to tell my mum that, that he was after passing. And my mum and dad were asking 60 years married on the 29th of October. So she had to say goodbye to him through the window, which was heartbreaking. And so the other siblings had to say goodbye as well through the window. Like, my dad was there by himself. <clears throat> Sorry, my dad was there by himself, died by himself. We don't know what time his post got week that we should have been called to him, even for someone to sit with him, just to hold his hands. And there were so many died in that nursing home that we don't know if my dad was in that coffin or not. We don't know who we buried, whether it was my dad or whether it was someone else, because there were so many died in that nursing home as well. It's just, uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking, Sharon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for them not to be able to leave me in first, not to be able to find a key for the fire eggs, which is the most important thing in any building. I mean, like, and it was a second pandemic that they should have learned something from the first pandemic. 
and your 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 family are outside well, looking at this. I mean, that's the, it's the, that's nearly this. It's the same or very similar story as Christine, another caller, you know, described to us earlier today. Yeah. And the yeah. yeah, and then on the Sunday after my dad passing on the Saturday, I was in my mom's house and I got a call from the nursing home, and they just said to me, "Oh, we have someone here to say hello to you," and I said, "Excuse me." And they said, yeah, there's someone here to say hello to you. And I said, my dad passed yesterday. And they said, oh, we're sorry about that. So they didn't even care who they were ringing. Like the the aftermath, Sharon, of all of this, like, you know, that was one of the things that Jean talked about earlier today and Christine, like it's the... It's it's not it's it's the it's the trying to cope and deal with having you know lost a loved one or a family member or a parent, and then it's the, the effectively the trauma as you've it described is. it. You know, it is. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions left there unanswered. There's closure that we we'll never we we'll never get these questions answered unless we have a public inquiry. We need the public inquiry. There's, we need people to listen to us. I mean, I know we're on the, we're on the media telling these stories, but like we are people that suffered. Absolutely, and I'm still suffering from it. I know, and that that's that's the part that that really strikes me, Sharon. Is from listening to you and Christine today. It's the it's the the long term. I know it's, there's always the long term suffering that comes with having you know lost somebody or a loved one. But like it's you're dealing with you like you know it's it's the trauma that has come with this as well. Like. Exactly, exactly. I mean, like when I got into the PPA gear, they dressed me in the PPA PPA gear that Saturday morning. Like, they could have said to me, your father has passed at a quarter to seven. Like, why leave it so long? And why leave me going to the room? And me to ask, was he after passing? I mean, that's not, that wasn't acceptable. And then for me having to tell my mum, and my mum, the window was high up. So my brother had to lift my mum up to the window to say goodbye to my dad through a window. Which was heartbreaking. And we were told then the window opened slightly and we were told, they were told on the outside to stand back because they could get COVID. How was your, your mum and, and your brother and yourself, Sharon? Like, I, you know, how... Like, my mum is, she's suffering from severe anxiety at the moment. My mum has never raised since this happened. And I'm, we're the same myself. I mean, I, like, I visit my dad's grave every single day of the week in all weathers. And as I said, I don't know if that's my dad or not. Like, it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. That's what it is. I mean, to think that, like, that man, my dad had dignity. He was a well-dressed man. He loved his clothes. He loved his grandchildren. He loved his children. He loved us all. He was a great father, a great grandfather. I just think that he died alone. I mean, surely to go at the nursing home knew when his pulse was getting weak, that we should have been called. But they didn't probably check on him. There wasn't regular checks being done on him. I to think he died alone. That's something we'll never get over. I'm sorry now. No, don't be, don't, don't apologise at all, Sharon. I, I don't know what to say to you, you know, it's... I know, and people do, like, we do need to have a public inquiry into the way this, this happened. Like, this shouldn't have happened. They're human beings as well. Yeah. Do you know, no, matter, no matter what age they were, no. like, this shouldn't have happened. It's, it's just, it's absolutely just, it's heartbreaking listening, you know, to, to you this afternoon. Um, I, I don't know, Jean, do, do you, you know, Jean Callan and actually Sharon is, is with us here as well. Jean's the chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation and... Like I can tell, Jean, like you're just absolutely so struck listening to the, listening to Sharon I mean, and Christine. The, the stories are so heartbreaking. They are so much the way we do not do death in Ireland, the way we have never, ever wanted to do death in Ireland. And while we may not be, we can't, you know, unfortunately, Sharon, you know, 
bring your dad back, change that situation, that appalling situation that, you know, should never have happened. Because even with constraints, there were ways of making that more humane. There was such a lack of humanity and compassion and dignity in that situation. And it shouldn't have it shouldn't have been happening. Uh, What what we need to do is is learn the lessons of what happened to make sure they never ever happen mm. again. Um, sometimes we have a have a habit here of getting into inquiries which become very legalistic and very much about finding fault. Uh, I, I know quite a lot of healthcare workers and people in nursing homes who are completely traumatised by what happened on their end of things. So when I was investigating this, I mean, I spoke to uh, one healthcare worker who cried as she told me about being beside a dying person, holding an iPad, saying it's your daughter and she wants you to know that she loves you. It was really, I've also heard stories of people who have left nursing because they found the the whole fallout of that so difficult and so painful. So it was a very traumatic time um, for for everybody, but no, for nobody more than for families Absolutely. like you who had that Absolutely. experience. Just yeah. when you mentioned, Jean, there, um, the, you know, healthcare workers and, and people that were working in settings, I think we've actually we've another caller with us on the line. Sharon, would, would you mind just staying with us, actually, if, if you don't mind? Because I just want to bring in, I think we've got um, Margot is with us. Margot, you worked in a nursing home during this time, is that right? Hi, Andrea. Yes, um, I, I worked as a as a healthcare assistant uh, for twenty years in a nursing home, um, in a large nursing home, and um, you know, I I I, I I'm sorry for for Sharon's loss, and I just feel you know, um, it, it it we're not out to set a blame, or you know, we empathise with the very challenging circumstances of of the of the outbreak, um. Um, personally, while my my workplace had no control over, you know, um, lack of delay in testing and general lack of PPE in the country, you know, they did have control over certain things like end of life care. Um, you know, um, I trained actually as a as a care at end of life uh, facilitator by the Irish Hospice Foundation, and uh, um, unfortunately, I got COVID um, early on, and. Um, but uh, we we had a policy in place with regard to anticipatory prescribing, um, which was one of um, twelve issues that I raised in a protective disclosure. Um, so, um, but this policy was strictly for end of life only, and specifically states that it's for the last hours or days of a person's life in which it's okay. been necessary to to give medication. But um, okay, can I uh, ask you, Margot, if you can maybe just you know bring us back to the time during the um, the COVID restrictions where like that that story that Jean just described of people she spoke to, healthcare workers that were in you know settings or hospitals uh, or during this period, and Jean talked about you know like the heartbreak even for for people like yourself and other nursing staff and care staff having that were in with um, people who were you know like in their in their dying final hours and and holding up an iPad you know with family members saying goodbye to them through a tablet or a computer or something like is that have is that your memory of this or your experience um, it was her, it, i mean that 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 is horrific um like for like a number of weeks like families uh, who were not contacted you know to even inform them you know, their relative was dying or that even COVID was on site. You know, we were told not to tell families that COVID was on our ward because it would only worry them. Um, and, that, uh, you know, so I remember um, a friend of mine who happened to have a relative um, in in my workplace, you know, um, said uh, her mum tested positive and he received no reply um, after afterwards for six days. And then he finally received... What he said was uh, an insensitive call about funeral arrangements and um, described as someone reading from a script, you know, so um, and uh, came to the window to see was his mother um, still alive, basically. And then and, and the belongings were, 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 were taken down. We were, we were asked to remove uh, personal belongings, actually, for residents as well to make it a clinical environment. We turned from a residential care setting into an acute setting. And that was one of the things I found very difficult because you know these the, the, these older people um, have so little in the world, and and their personal belongings were being put in put into storage, and um, so 
Um, it's the lack of the humanity, that, isn't it? Of very, very much so. Yeah. yeah, that was very difficult. And um, you know the, um, you know the 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 lack of adherence, like to to guidelines, and and with a devastating consequ- consequences. And my ward, like, had the highest number of fatalities in the hospital. We lost more than um, uh, six in twenty five residents. Um, and. Uh, I found that I found that very difficult. Yeah. And, the, um, and I think the, the the impact on you know healthcare staff, Jean, as you mentioned, like it's was that part of your survey, the research that you did? Uh, no, but we have been doing various other pieces of work with people in the in the healthcare settings, and we have been involved in initiatives where we're going in and working with them yeah. on the trauma because they are traumatised too. But I would be concerned if we could ever give out the uh, telephone number for the Irish Hospice Foundation Absolutely. Bereavement Line. Yeah. Because a lot of people will be traumatised listening Absolutely. to these conversations. Yeah. And I, I think it is important. It's a national free phone service and that's um, 1800 80 70 Double seven, um, and uh, we'll, we'll give you that that number back out again. Actually, too, uh, just just before the end um, of the program, because you're right, it, it is important, and I can tell from the stories coming in, Jean. There's you know Sharon and and Margot and Christine that was with us a little earlier. They're not alone. I think we've got Pat on the line as well. Pat, thanks for joining us in the program today. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm not bad, Pat. I, I um well, would would you like to tell us maybe your experience? Yeah, my wife contacted COVID and she died in the nursing home the, the year before tw- she died in 2021 February but the year before when COVID came in the nursing home was brilliant the infection control was good communication was brilliant you were getting newsletters constantly and phone calls were answered but there was a change in management Christmas 2020 and everything changed. Within a couple of weeks, COVID was all over the nursing home. The staff were out, all the residents had it. And then people started dying. But trying to get information was non-existent. You were making phone calls. You could go 24 hours, 36 hours without a phone call being answered. Veronica was 64. We got word on the end of January that she had COVID. Were and you was, pa- were you able, Pat? Sorry to cut across you. Were you, were you able to um, to go into the, the the nursing home? Like, were you were you able to be with your with your wife? We got in to visit her before she died, but we weren't with her when she died. We just got a phone call at half seven one morning to say she had passed, and it turned out. We found out a couple of weeks later that under the guidelines that were in place at the time, a family member could have been in with a loved one dying. Yeah. But we weren't informed about that by the nursing home. Once you were willing to accept the risk, you weren't allowed to get in. Yeah. But no families were told about this. We could have had people dying, could have had loved ones with them. But it wasn't explained to people that that was facility was there. And the impact, Pat, of you know, of, of all of this and, and not being able to, you know, be with your wife in, in her in her final hours and final, you know, minutes like it's I'm I'm sure it must be it's still to the front of your mind. Yeah, it's with you every day. It's with the children. That we're trying to get answers exactly what happened. As I say, communication was very bad. There was no as far as I can see there was no compassion for families or nothing. But my wife was moved out of the room she was in for four years. She was out of that room nine days before I discovered, and I only discovered that by a mistake. And I don't know what was happening to her for that nine days. She had a negative test. She was moved the day she had the negative test, and she caught COVID. And when I finally heard that she had COVID, we got through the next day on the Monday, and... I was told that she was grand. They took her for a walk that evening. The person I was talking to had taken her for a walk around the home that evening. And when I pointed out that my wife couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, it turned out I was getting information on another resident. So you couldn't trust what was being said. 
And weeks later, then when I got in contact with other families, they were in a group with the Care Champions group. We were basically all getting the same kind of report on our family members every day. They're doing well, they're taking fluids. Everybody was getting the same report. And you had cases there, that girl that was on earlier, Christine, she only found out the Sunday night, her mother had COVID, no one contacted her. And that lady died the next day. There was no truth coming out in regards to a person's condition in the home. It's like we'd be just fobbed off. Everybody was told the one thing. Yeah. And it's very hard to understand what actually happened in there. And would you support, because Sharon is still with us as well, Pat, and, and you know, Sharon talked about just the, the the need for more answers, clarity, you know, inquiries. I know Jean, who's with us too from the Hospice Foundation, talked about the fact that there's yeah. actually still some restrictions, you know, in, in, in place for people, even at this stage. And, and Jean is calling for, to, for that yeah. to for that to um, cease, you know, in, in particularly in the kind of cases that you're talking about. But Yeah, there's, there's a lot of answers here. Like at the moment, no, there should be a caregiver in there, a family member should be able to get in full-time access. It makes a big difference to the residents in there. But in regards to a public inquiry, yes, we're looking for a public inquiry, a full and public inquiry into everything that happened. But all we're getting is indifference from the government. They've been contacted on numerous occasions. We're not getting any replies. The group of families I'm involved with, we asked the Taoiseach and the Minister for Health to meet with us. No acknowledgement to that request. I think the government just don't want to know. And you're not getting any help from anywhere, only for the likes of Care Champions. No, families have been lost. And they, I think they're the Care Champions, they're a sort of an advocacy group, isn't it, for, for patients and, and staff? Yeah, yeah. and carers. Yeah, and carers, yeah. Girl in Longford. Can but, I... I just want to ask Jean. Sorry, no, Pat. No, don't. I just thank you for for joining us. And I, you know, it's even I'm I'm very conscious, Jean. I suppose of people reliving this experience, you know, and and so vividly today in the in the pictures that they've painted. Um, just on Pat and Sharon's point, would the Hospice Foundation support a public inquiry? I don't think we'd support a public inquiry per se, but I think we would absolutely say we need to be learning the lessons. And there have been various processes going on to to get clarity around. Mm. Uh, so there was an investigation into yeah. into nursing homes that has come out with a series of recommendations, which will make things a lot, a lot, uh, a lot better as it moves forward. And I think there is a commitment to doing that. I mean, what I hear in both Pat and Christine is the issue that they found some that there were some rights, like somebody could have been there, but we didn't know. Christine said, you know, somebody else was able to go and be, but in our case, it wasn't. And that's why we need clarity now. At this moment, the situation we have at the moment is like grace and favour. If somebody likes you or a particular ward sister uh, says, yes, you can get in to be with your loved one, that should not be the situation. Mm. And there needs to be clarity. So we need to learn from yeah, the absolutely. awful lessons um, and painful lessons. Sharon, just maybe a, a final question to yourself, you know, just in, in terms of the, the aftermath of all of this and you and the family, you know, how like, how, how are you all managing? Um, we're just coping from day to day. That's all. That's all we can do. Um, as I say, like I am at the grave every day, praying. And my mom has has been in hospital a couple of times with severe anxiety. Yeah. Um, like we're just coping as a family day to day. That's all we can do. And Pat, are you like are you are you how you know how how are you doing and and the family as well, day to day? Are you there, Pat? Oh yes, sorry. Yeah, no, here. I was just asking. You know, just how, how are you keeping now? Yeah, well, it's with you every day. Like you're still trying to get. You can't step away from it. No. But I was just listening there to Jean's reply. Do you know about families getting in and stuff? When we got the first phone call to come in on a Friday night, we came in and we went in two at a time for fifteen minutes each. The next morning, Saturday, I was ringing, and at one o'clock, I got the phone answered by the person in charge. I was inquiring about my wife, and she said, would you like to come out? And I said, yes. And I said, look, before we come out now, I'd like each of us to go in one at a time, to spend a bit of time with her. And I was told that wouldn't be a problem. 
So we went out. The three children got about 40 minutes each. I got about an hour and a half, maybe a bit more. And then they find out later that in Christine's case, they weren't even allowed into the building. Mm, I know when it's and, that difference, isn't it, between yeah, families? Why, and that's very, yeah, that's very hard. Yeah, and like I got an answer weeks later that they tried to balance the needs of the family. One family's needs was not any more important than another mm. family. We all had the same needs. We all needed to be in there. So how could they justify not letting people in or not even contacting people? Well, definitely, certainly, as you mentioned, and Sharon mentioned the same, and Christine, it's you know very much so on the on the contacting people point. It's um, it's hard to see, Jean, as you said. You know, how how do you not learn from that? I do want to give out the bereavement support line again. The um, Irish Hospice Foundation, in in partnership with the HSE, um, it's a national free phone service. It's eighteen hundred eighty seventy double seven. Available uh, Monday to Friday as well. There and. Um, yeah, look, Jean, thank you very much as well for joining us in studio. That is Jean Callanan, who's the chair of the Irish Hospice Foundation. There's actually, there's more stories coming in. I see um, an email there. There's Terry in, in Drogheda's got in touch. Brendan in Cork as well. And Emer got in touch. Emer's on the line. Emer, what's your story? Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much, first of all, for actually highlighting this, because just to get a chance to talk about it means an awful lot to all mm, of us. No problem. Uh, Mum died in... January 2021. She didn't die with from COVID, but she died as a result of it. And I really feel that she just gave up the ghost, that her life was so miserable and she was so lonely that she just couldn't continue anymore. And a bit like all of your other contributors, Pat and Christine and Sharon, the lack of communication and the implementation of guidelines just left so, so many people in such a terrible situation. I was allowed 15 minutes, my statutory guideline recommendations, in with mommy on the Friday, even though she was actually unresponsive at that stage. And I was told then that that was my 15 minutes per week I wasn't allowed a minute over and I was told that I would not be getting any more that week. I pleaded with them. I said, I I really feel she's near the end. I really feel she's near the end. Please let me come again. And I was told, no, 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 you've had your 15 minutes. That was on the Saturday and on the Sunday. And I kept pleading and pleading and pleading. I knew, Mom, I'd been with with her every single day. I knew her. I knew she was at the end. And I would have thought that a professional nurse would have known that too. But they wouldn't allow me in. And they wouldn't allow me be there at all. She was in a top story room. So I wasn't able to even be at a window. So we could do absolutely nothing. I got a phone call at about a quarter to two in the morning. Saturday, Sunday morning into Monday to say Mummy had passed. And again, like all your other contributors, I tried to ask and tried to get information about was there anybody with her. I had pleaded with them to try and have somebody with her. I knew she was near the end, but I never got any Mm -hmm. communication. I never got any answers. It's the lack of communication, isn't it, Eimear? And it's still to this day, so many of us, cannot gain access to the notes that would have been written and would have been kept as to how. It's the questions. It's the, the not knowing. And as all of you are the contributors and those of us, every single person who died in a nursing home, and there were a lot of them, they all have families. So it's a domino effect. And we're all grieving terribly. I lost Daddy six years prior. And yes, it was terrible. But we stayed for three days in the nursing home and held mm. his hand. We were there. We helped him pass. It's there's just no comparison. No this type of grieving and it's you know I, I, I haven't you know I, I haven't experienced um, grief during during lockdown I haven't you know in the year prior to it but I mean it strikes me from talking to, to you and, and Christine and Pat 
and Sharon on the show today is it's nearly like you kind of you don't get to the grieving stage because you're actually still going through this whole trauma period. Yeah, you know what I mean? That the grieving is nearly prolonged. Absolutely stuck. And the more we are, we're trying and we've we've sought counselling. We've tried to help ourselves. We've tried care champions. We've helped, tried to get counselling set up for all of our groups. We've attended counselling. We have tried to help ourselves. We really have tried. Mm. But the one block we get right along the way is the lack of information, the lack of notes, the lack of answers to questions. What happened? And to prevent this happening again... Mm. But I, I have to be any, I have any. to be honest, Emer. I, I didn't I didn't quite realise the extent to which restrictions were still in place until Jean mentioned it today. I mean I knew yeah. within a certain extent, you know, but yeah. I didn't I, I didn't really realise the extent to which they were. Well, in the north of Ireland they now have a care partner who is a member of the family who is treated basically as a member of staff. They're tested, they're PPE'd, they're given everything, and they are allowed full access as if they were a member of staff. And that's what we have been trying to get, some kind of um, continuity Mm. of care for our loved ones. We're only asking for one person. We're not asking for the whole family to be allowed in 24 hours a day. But we are asking, as Jean said, the physical contact that listening to a loved one speaking at at your final moments is so very very important and it's that guilt that we live with that they didn't have that they don't deserve that they didn't deserve that they worked they tried their very best mommy was 90 she put in 90 good years but my goodness I wouldn't wish this and this end on anybody. It's not fair and we must prevent it happening again. We must learn, but we're not learning. It's still going on. And you shouldn't feel that guilt either, Emer. You know what I mean? Like listening to, to all of the callers today, like you shouldn't be left with that guilt. No, no. Because no. you're trying to grieve, you know. The, and, and The loss of a parent is hard enough and it's not nice yeah. and COVID is hard enough. But this guilt and this terrible anxiety about how were they in their final moments and their final days and hours mm. is just incredibly difficult to and really it's only people who have been through it that can empathize completely with it absolutely and I, I that's the I'm, I'm very conscious of that you know in, in talking to to you and I should say as well to um to Pat and Christine and Sharon and Margot, who all got in touch and shared your stories today, I know it, it has, you know, to it took an awful lot of courage to pick up the phone and to ring and to just have the, um, I suppose, the, the just the ability to, to talk out and, and speak today. So I do really, really genuinely appreciate you sharing your, your stories with us. Um, I wish there was more I could do or, or say, you know, but um, I do want to actually just give out the, the Irish Hospice Foundation. Jean mentioned as well the, the National Free Phone Service because I'm sure there's plenty of others listening today who might just need somebody to chat to and that number is 1800 80 70 double seven. Emer, thank you. So for joining us as well, you know, on on the programme today. Lunchtime live at Newstalk.com. As always, that's the email address if you want to get in touch with us on the programme. My thanks to the production team, as always. Uh, Sean will be here next. I'll be back. Lunchtime live midday tomorrow. Lunchtime live with Andrea Gilligan. Brought to you by Avant Money. Weekdays at midday on Newstalk.